suddenly Elon Musk feels to me like Prince Harry. And Linda Yaccarino is in the role of Meghan Markle. You know, and early on, what you heard everyone say when he hired Linda Yaccarino, the, the Elon Musk fan says, hey, don't worry. Elon has a plan. He's in control. This is just, you know, this is just an attempt to, you know, to appease, you know, the people on the left and to appease his advertisers. And then her job was just simply to tell them to all come back. Everything's going to be fine. But it isn't playing out like that at all. We, we need a saving Silverman type of mission here. We've got, to, we've got to kidnap Elon Musk and save him from Linda Yaccarino. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debates, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're gonna be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture this is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. We discuss on this show ideas and their consequences, hence the reason we call it Ideas Have Consequences. And we discuss how your basic assumptions about life color your worldview and inform your decisions about everything. Now, some fans of this podcast have said, hey, Larry, I can track with you and almost everything that you say and, and appreciate so much of what you say until you bring up God and religion. I mean, why do you have to bring up God and religion? There's There have been a number of people who have said that in the comments, not members of the posse per se, but still a few people who have complained about that. And listen, I can appreciate your desire to help me out. Now, let me help you out by helping you to understand why I do it, why I think it's important, and why I say that ideas have consequences. The most fundamental question of human existence is this, does God exist? Does he exist? And if he does, what does he want from me? It's the who am I and why am I here question. Philosophers throughout history have 
agreed on this. They haven't always agreed on the answer, but they've agreed on that. Even major atheists of our own time agree on this question. Don't agree on the answers, but they agree on the question. It informs everything. Now, what you believe about God's existence or his non-existence affects the whole trajectory of your worldview. It's the basic building block of a worldview. But it's much more than his existence or his non-existence. It's also about, you know, if you decide that he does exist or uh, a God exists or gods exist, the question becomes then, what's his character? You know, what is he like? What sort of God is he? Now, I bring this up because there are a number of things that are happening in the culture right now, on the, on the socio-political landscape, where you're seeing this issue bubble up to the surface. And where I really noticed it, I was in Europe, but nonetheless, I managed to see it, um, a bit of the um, Republican debate that was on Fox News. And here is a comment that is made by um, Vivek, Ramaswamy. Now listen to listen to this right here. Mr. Ramaswamy. I was born in 1985 and I grew up into a generation where we were taught to celebrate our diversity and our differences so much that we forgot all of the ways we are really just the same as Americans bound by a common set of ideals that set this nation into motion in 1776. And this is our moment to revive those common ideals. God is real. There are two genders, fossil fuels. Now, there we go. So here we have, he brings up the issue of God. And he's, what, he's, what he's doing here is he is referring to, and he's talking about a common set of ideals and the founding of the United States. He's referring to that line in the Declaration of Independence, which says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I really appreciate what Mr. Ramaswamy is saying here, insofar as he is asserting for, really, for a country to exist, there must be certain commonly held ideals, truths that people accept uh, as, as defining them as a people. Everyone's gonna encounter pain in their life. The questions deal with the degree of one's pain and the source of one's pain and how we deal with our pain. In this course, I'm speaking very personally about my own pain and some of the lessons that I've learned in coping with pain, how we minister to people with pain, and what kind of perspective are we to have on the big questions that surround pain and human suffering? Why would you take a course like this? Well, presumably, if you haven't suffered in your own life, you will encounter people who do, and undoubtedly some of them are people who are very near and dear to you. I think it'd be very helpful for you to take a course like this in order to understand what they're experiencing and the way that you minister to people in those kinds of circumstances. So I'd love for you to take this course of mine, and I wanna tell you this, that 
When you subscribe to Tome, you get access not just to my course, but to more than a hundred other courses that are dealing with very practical issues and assisting you in living and in flourishing. So where can you get this course? Well, you can't get it at Amazon. You can't get it at Apple. You can't get it at Netflix. You can only get it at Tome. So I want you to go to tomeapp.com slash pain to learn more about my course. Let's get back to the podcast. With an open borders policy, we have allowed any number of people into this country who do not share what have been traditional American values. They don't look at them and say that they too hold these truths to be self-evidential. Now, what I find interesting about Mr. Ramaswamy's assertion is that he is saying that he, he adheres to those truths. He believes in those self-evidential truths that flow from God, that flow from a creator, as the Declaration of Independence itself says. But he's wrong. He doesn't. He actually doesn't share in that. And that's because the founding fathers were speaking out of a Judeo-Christian worldview, not a Hindu worldview. Ramaswamy is Hindu. He definitely does not share in that worldview. Indeed, whether he knows it or not, he holds views that are quite alien to those views expressed in the Declaration of Independence and elsewhere in America's founding documents. In fact, to which, to which of Hindus' 33 deities or 330 million deities, there's there's some debate over the actual number of deities within Hinduism. To which of these does Mr. Ramaswamy refer when he says that God exists? He believes in God. Which one, Mr. Ramaswamy? So it's not simply enough to say that you believe in God. You also have to define, give some, give some um, content to who that God is. You see, ideas do have consequences, and it's not just belief in a God or gods, it's, there has to be some content, some clarity as to the personality, as to the character of that God. And Mr. Ramaswamy is himself. He has admitted that he himself is Hindu. And the Hindu religion has nothing in common with a Judeo-Christian worldview. In fact, anybody who is familiar with the Judeo-Christian, that is to say the the God of the Bible, knows this, that the very first commandment, you know what the very first commandment is? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no Hindu gods before me. Thou shalt not have any of those 33 or 330 million deities in front of me. They're alien to the God of the Bible. But it goes a little bit even beyond that. Now let's look at another manifestation of the belief in God or non-belief in God. And it comes from uh, a debate that I did with Michael Shermer, uh, who was an atheist, editor of Skeptic Magazine, well-known atheist, which I did with him in downtown Seattle in October of 2015. Now I want you to listen to this exchange which I had with Michael. abortion, another... Um a, a new and newsworthy subject here for the Republican debates. Um, so in the long history of, of civilization, uh, men have constantly oppressed women's rights, especially trying to control women's reproductive choices because that's one way of lording it over them, especially when you can't lord it over them physically 
with violence because the laws now prohibit that. So this is sort of the last standing areas. Why won't you grant, I presume you're pro-life. Pro We're all pro-life. Uh, the question is, are you also pro-freedom and pro-choice? Why not take that extra step and, and, and give women that, 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 you know, take off the chains. Let women just make their own choices. I will take the position of um, our mutual friend, Christopher Hitchens, who was decidedly um, anti-abortion uh, in his stance. And, uh, and he said that he was because he said that the razor's cut, as he said, was a little too close. His mother had an abortion both before he was born and shortly thereafter. And he said, but for the grace of what, there go I. Um, I don't think this is about a, a woman's rights. I think this is ultimately about responsibility. And there are consequences for the choices that we make, both positive and negative, and taking the life of an innocent child, I do not see as a choice that should be on the table. Well, that's fine for you. And I would agree with you. I wouldn't make that choice either. But that's not any of my business when somebody else wants to do something different particularly in the case of rape or something like that, but even just a drunken night mistake. I mean, stuff happens. Shit happens, all right? Let's just say it. <laughs> and people make mistakes. Okay, With all so. due respect, Michael, I don't consider and, children shit. Well, and uh, that's just the way I view it. I mean, it. the idea that uh, I wasn't talking about children. Now, Michael never recovered from that in that debate. He lets slip his worldview. It wasn't, it wasn't just simply me scoring cheap points and dunking on Shermer because he, you know, he, he misspoke. Rather, he is expressing an atheistic worldview, which he is. Now, I know that many of you, there have been others of you who have expressed in the comments saying, look, I'm an atheist and I don't believe in abortion or I believe in freedom or I believe in the dignity of human beings. My point in previous podcasts when I've talked about the logical outcome of atheism has not been that all atheists are, you know, genocidal maniacs or that all of them are people who, um, who hold no value for human life. My point, rather, is that atheism, when it is taken to its logical worldview, when you push it out, very few atheists do this, but when you push it out to its logical outcome, you arrive exactly where Michael Shermer did. And that is to say that human beings have no more value than any other animal on the face of the earth. There's no, there's, there's no divine quality to human beings. They're not made in the image of anything. They are simply an accident in space and time. There's no ultimate right and wrong. There's no ultimate hope. There's no ultimate meaning in life. So Michael Shermer, Michael Shermer's comment about human life, oh, come on, you know, stuff happens, shit happens, he says, is it's very natural that this would be his view of children because he doesn't believe that human beings have any ultimate uh, dignity that is given to them by a creator. And again, as you see, ideas have consequences. So when we're talking about Mr. Ramaswamy, we're talking about a guy who says that as a Hindu, he believes in all of these deities. 
How does that actually give content to what he believes? Well, he says that it, that it takes him to a place where he accepts the basic premise of the Declaration of Independence that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That's not a Hindu view. He's expressing a Judeo-Christian worldview when he says that. Then we look at Michael Shermer, who is an atheist, who would reject the Hindu viewpoint, the, uh, the Islamic viewpoint, who would reject um, a Christian viewpoint, a Jewish viewpoint, any religious input whatsoever. God doesn't exist, and he arrives at yet another place. And that is the place where, I mean, read Peter Singer. I've made repeated references to Princeton bioethicist philosopher Peter Singer, who says the very same thing. A mother should get 28 days with a newborn child to determine whether or not to keep it or to euthanize it. The euthanasia that we're seeing in Canada now, that we're seeing in the Netherlands now, this is an outgrowth of an atheistic worldview of Peter Singer's philosophy, a utilitarian worldview. Consider the words of atheist Richard Dawkins in one of our debates. Okay, suppose there is no hope. Suppose there's no justice. Suppose there's nothing but misery and darkness and bleakness. Suppose there's nothing that we would wish for, nothing that we would hope for. Too bad. That's the atheistic worldview taken to its logical conclusions. It isn't to say that all atheists are prepared to believe that. Most atheists I know do not follow their atheism to its logical conclusion. It's, it's far too disturbing. But again, ideas do have consequences. And Richard, Richard is historically naive in making a comment like this because the worldview that he's giving expression to there has also given us the great genocides of the 20th century. Those are done by secular regimes that were done by fascist or socialist regimes. As I've stated on this podcast repeatedly, no less than 150 million people murdered by socialist regimes in the 20th century alone. Now, that is more than all religious wars from all previous centuries combined. Combined. So don't tell me about the evils of religion. The real evils are those of a secular, that is to say, a godless worldview. And I also want to say here, I'm, I'm not an adherent to religion. I am a Christian. I believe in the person. My faith is not anchored in an idea. It is anchored in a person. It is anchored in the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, who he was, and what he has spoken in his word. So I believe these things matter. But if you don't, if you don't believe there's a God, where does that take you? Well, it takes you to the worldview of Peter Singer. It takes you to the worldview of Richard Dawkins. It takes you to the bleak worldview of Michael Shermer. I like the way David Berlinski, who interestingly enough is a secular Jew, man I know lives in Paris, interesting guy, mathematician, philosopher, great writer. But in his clever little book, The Devil's Delusion, Berlinski says this, 
what Hitler did not believe and what Stalin did not believe and what Mao did not believe and what the SS did not believe and what the NKVD did not believe and what the commissars, functionaries, swaggering executioners, Nazi doctors, Communist Party theoreticians, intellectuals, brown shirts, black shirts, gall eiders, and a thousand party hacks did not believe was that God was watching what they were doing. And as far as we can tell, very few of those carrying out the horrors of the 20th century worried over much that God was watching what they were doing either. That is, after all, the meaning of a secular society. So Berlinsky there nails it. When you follow your unbelief to its logical conclusions, this is where it takes you. And I'm trying to help you understand how a worldview is built, how a worldview is built, the very first question, think of it like one of those, one of those choose your own adventure books. I might do this. And on page one, the first question is this, do you believe in God? And depending on how you answer, it takes you to another page in the book. And then the question, if you say no, it takes you, you know, down one path. If you say yes, it takes you down another. And it begins asking you questions. If you, say, if you answer that question in the affirmative, it begins asking you questions about, well, what do you believe about that God? Do you believe he's orderly or do you believe he's a God of chaos? Do you believe he's knowable or unknowable? Do you believe he's a God of justice or do you believe he's a God of grace? Or do you believe he's both? What do you believe about this God? And how you answer those questions determines your worldview. The basic building block to any worldview starts with the question, do you believe in God? And if the answer to that question is no, it takes you down a dark path if you follow it logically. But just because you say yes doesn't mean it necessarily leads you down a path of light. Because... If you believe things about his character, for instance, the Hindu god Kali. Kali is an evil goddess, you know, the multi-armed goddess. Her tongue is red with the blood of human beings. You've, have you ever heard of the Tuggy, the Tuggy cults of, uh, of India? They, they strangled people in, uh, in ritual death. They were worshipers of Kali. I mean, just saying that you believe in God doesn't itself mean that you go down a road that's a positive road. You believe in a very wicked kind of God. I think believing in the God of Islam takes you down a very dark path. Many of the Muslims that I have known over the years tend to be fairly fuzzy, westernized um, Muslims. And that is because they choose not to read the Quran. They don't want to read the Quran. They know that the Quran is violent. They know that the Quran says, as we pointed out in previous podcasts, the interviews that I did with Dr. J. Smith, that those that the Quran itself, the Hadith, say that you're to model your life after Muhammad, who was a murderer, a rapist. He was a man who taught violence. He was a man of violence. And the Quran says that unbelievers must convert, pay a tax, or die. Those are the three choices. And many Muslims choose not, choose not to read their holy literature 
because they know it's dark and they don't want to feel guilty for not doing what their religion requires them to do. So simply answering the question, yes, I believe God exists, in the affirmative doesn't necessarily take you in the right direction. In my opinion, it only takes you in the right direction if you end up, if your, your finishing point is the person of Jesus Christ and in his word, which we find in scripture. Again, ideas have consequences. It matters. It affects worldview in a very big way. And on the other hand, if you say that God doesn't exist, it, as I've pointed out, as David Berlinski points out, and even as Richard Dawkins and Michael Shermer and Peter Singer themselves will admit, it takes you to a very dark place where there is no hope, there is no meaning, there's no ultimate right and wrong. Might makes right. There's no one to judge you in the next life for your actions in this one. And it's there that I want to focus for a moment because that worldview, that secularist worldview, gave us the horrors of the 20th century, and it threatens to give us horrors that will beggar the imagination in the 21st century and beyond because it is a worldview that absolutely possesses the globalist mindset. It is the worldview that you see among members of the World Economic Forum, people like Klaus Schwab. It is the worldview that you see being expressed in people like Bill Gates. It is the worldview. I played the clip for you on this podcast of World Economic Forum agenda contributor, Dr. Dennis Meadows, who says we must reduce we must reduce the global population from 8 billion to less than 2 billion. But I hope we can do it peacefully, he says. That's where that worldview takes you. It takes you to an anti-human, anti-democratic, anti-good, anything good worldview. It's where it takes you. But I want you to listen to this video right here, this, this presentation by John Kerry. This is uh, an interesting uh, little bit here that he said last week at a climate conference. You know, John Kerry is Biden's climate czar. He's the climate czar. He's unelected. He's been appointed to this position, flies around in private jets telling everyone to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and he's the guy who has now bought in. He's he is the modern iteration, the current iteration of um, Al Gore. That's who he is. But listen to what he had to say last week in Scotland at this climate Economics conference. They flatly deny what is happening to our planet and what we must do to save it. They incite a movement against what they falsely label climate change fanaticism as they conveniently forget that the dictionary definition of a cult is the dismissal of facts in devotion to a lie. And while they refuse to accept the facts behind increasingly obvious damages, which the First Minister listed, they lash out at the truth-tellers instead and label indisputable evidence as hysteria. They compound the already difficult challenge of the climate crisis by promising to do more of exactly what created this crisis in the first place.
So now, humanity is inexorably threatened by humanity itself. Wow. Wow. Note the language that John Kerry there uses. Humanity is inexorably threatened by humanity itself. Now, when I heard him say this, I was immediately reminded of a line from the apocalyptic literature which gave rise to this movement in the first place. Now, some of you will remember this from a previous, uh, a previous podcast on the World Economic Forum where I was laying out for you the ideas that have shaped and given rise not just to the World Economic Forum, but to um, the climate hysteria that we're seeing today. And by the way, John, John, John Kerry is absolutely possessed of the climate hysteria. How much he actually believes it isn't clear to me because Kerry himself has private jet. He has multiple homes. He has loads of automobiles, a yacht. He's a man who is laying down a pretty significant carbon footprint, more than you or I or everybody listening to this podcast will lay out in our automobiles in a year. In a year. And it's a pretty sizable audience that's listening, watching this podcast. But he... He's the one who's, and I want to be clear, I have no problem if you own a yacht, if you have a private jet, or you have multiple residences, good for you. I only have a problem with it if you're going, to go, you're going to go and lecture the rest of us on how we're not allowed to do that or shouldn't do that, or we all have to live, you know, drive smart cars or, you know, take public transportation and, and uh, always fly commercial, if at all, while you do none of the same thing. But listen to the language. Humanity is inexorably threatened by humanity itself. Now, that language reminded me of this. This is a Club of Rome paper that was uh, published in 1970. It's called The Predicament of Mankind. You can find it online. I've made reference to it in a podcast on the World Economic Forum. It's not particularly long. It looks a little longer here than it is, but the actual relevant pages here, maybe about 60 pages. And uh, in it, it's laying out the need for a forum, as they call it, a world forum, which would eventually be called the World Economic Forum, a kind of executive committee that will address these issues. And it is saying, listen, we have a, a major, a major ecological crisis, and the crisis is humanity itself. The crisis is humanity itself. That led to the publication of this in 1991. 1991, the first global revolution. And the first global revolution is a, another paper that was issued by the Club of Rome. The Club of Rome uh, is a, um, it's, it's a think tank. It gave rise to the world. Economic Forum, and uh, I bought this off of Amazon. You, I, as far as I know, it's not been produced in an actual, you know, book form. It's just, it's just loose leaf. Uh, it's the only way that I know that you can get it. But I've read through the entire thing, and I think we have screenshots for you, which I will have put up on the screen. But here is what they say. Here is what they say. In a section called The Common Enemy of Humanity is Man. 
In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and in their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which demands the solidarity of all peoples. But in designating them as the enemy, we fall into the trap about which we have already warned, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All of these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome because the real enemy is humanity itself. Listen to that first sentence. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, and famine, and the like would fit the bill. They are stating quite openly, we're making all of this up. We're making all of this up because we have to unite humanity, and the way we unite them is through Fear. Fear. We frighten them. We tell them that the planet is boiling. We tell them that there will be massive food shortages. We tell them that there is massive overpopulation. We tell them that unless we act as a planet, that all will be lost. But what we don't really tell them is that we perceive them, humanity, to be the real problem. They're the ones we want to get rid of. They're the ones we want to get rid of. And so it's interesting to me that here is John Kerry, the climate czar, speaking at this conference in Scotland where he says the quiet part out loud. Sounds almost like a direct quotation from this. I'm sure he's read it. I'm sure John Kerry has read this. Humanity is inexorably threatened by humanity itself. And this paper says the real enemy then is humanity itself. He's practically quoting it. Again, ladies and gentlemen, this is not conspiracy theory. These are, these are their own academic papers which they have produced, which you can find online. Very simple. Again, this is called the first Global Revolution. It was published in 1991. It has had a massive impact on the thinking of secularists like this who are possessed with the idea that they themselves will be the saviors of humanity. But listen to what John Kerry had to say at the World Economic Forum this year. I was there in Davos. Listen to what he had to say. This is in January. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. If you said that to most people, most people... They think you're just a crazy tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever. And, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. I mean, listen to that. I do think that he is a crazy, tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, do-evil. Not, not, not do-gooder, do-evil. That's, that's what these, 
these people are about. They don't know that they're about that. They don't think of what they're doing as evil. They see themselves as saving humanity, or rather, no, excuse me, as saving the planet. It isn't about saving humanity. It's about saving the planet. But listen, listen to the arrogance of this, of this group of people who get together and they say, wow, it's, we've been given this extraterrestrial mission to save the planet. Uh, they've not been elected to this, but they see themselves as having this almost divine mission. Now, it isn't coming from God. He's careful not to use that language. He instead says that it is some sort of extraterrestrial mission that they have been given. But listen to the arrogance of this. Listen to their contempt for democracy. You read this, the first global revolution, and what you come away with is uh, not just their contempt for humanity, their contempt for democracy, for national sovereignty, and for the will of the people. They basically say, you must ignore your constituents. Have you noticed how extraordinary it is that we are seeing among these Weffer types, um, in, uh, people like, um, say, Macron, we're seeing it you know, with Trudeau in Canada. We're seeing it in the Netherlands. We are seeing it in Brazil. We are seeing it in the United States where you have elected officials who show an utter disregard for their constituencies. They're acting in a way that is completely contrary to what the polls show their own people want. And it is because they're being instructed to do this. They're being told, ignore them. Ignore them. Because it's for their own good for you to ignore them. And on top of this, this week, now again, I'm showing you how ideas have consequences. Once, once you adopt this kind of post-Christian secular worldview, which guys like John Kerry have absolutely adopted, it begins taking you in this direction. You will, I, I think it's G.K. Chesterton, many people have said it, but who said it isn't that man won't um, believe in anything uh, when he denies the existence of God. He'll believe in anything. Anything. We are teleological beings. We have been created as teleological beings. That is to say, as purposeful beings. We seek purpose. We try to find purpose in our lives, even while saying we don't believe in God. Some people do this. I had this conversation fairly recently with Richard Dawkins, who I said, you know, it's interesting to me that you have found you know, your meaning and going around and basically telling people there is no meaning. There's no God. But you go from conference to conference to conference and write book after book basically saying there's no meaning in life. There's no ultimate right and wrong. There's nothing but bleakness and misery. Too bad. That's, that's your meaning in life. People seek meaning. They look for it. And they can find it in sex, drugs, rock and roll, or they can find it in saying that they've been appointed by some terrestrial other in saving the planet. Individuals like this are extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. And... To show you just how contemptuous they are of the will of the people, just this last week on the same day, 
What, are, what a coincidence. Both the Atlantic and the New York Times published stories that were against voting. The New York Times, now the New York Times, by the way, they changed their headline. They went back and changed it because there was such a negative reaction to it. But their headline read, the original headline read, elections are bad for democracy. Really? Elections have been sacred in American politics. I grew up believing that our elections were sacred. I grew up believing that both sides honored the tradition of elections and their integrity, and that we were to honor the outcome of those elections. Not anymore. We have at least one side here who clearly is okay with ballot harvesting. They are okay with um, trying to manipulate the outcome of elections. Time Magazine actually ran a piece celebrating after the 2020 election, presidential election, celebrating, quote unquote, the conspiracy against Trump. Find that article. They said they, that's, that's their verbiage. That's what they called it, an effort to change the outcome of the election by a, uh, a cooperation between elements of government and big tech and mainstream media. But here you have the New York Times saying elections are bad for democracy. Now, they ended up changing this headline, changing the, uh, um, the title of it. Then the Atlantic, on the same day, ran a piece with this headline, Americans vote too much. Again, ideas have consequences. And what you're seeing here is a contempt for the will of the people because they believe the people don't matter. They're sure that they know what is good for you. You shouldn't be making these choices. They should make them for you. And John Kerry's statements, they embody, they embody all of this kind of elitist thinking. If you disagree with John Kerry, if you disagree with the climate uh, alarmist, then you are, as he said, you're part of a cult. You're part of a cult. No, I would say it's exactly the opposite. These people are the very definition of a cult. And, I, and, and I, I would maybe even go a little further than that. I wouldn't say just members of a cult, but occult. Occult. There's something very dark and sinister in what these people believe and in what they're hell-bent on doing. And hell-bent is a good way to put it because it feels like it's going very much in um, that direction towards the, uh, the netherworld. The Kerry statement it embodies all of this elitist thinking. We here in this room have been selected for our extraterrestrial mission to save the planet, not to save humanity, to save the planet. But here's another one for you. Watch this particular clip with Bill Gates. What do you say to the charge that if you are a climate change campaigner, but you also travel around the world on a private jet, you're a hypocrite. Well, I, 
I, by the gold standard of funding Climeworks to do direct air capture that far exceeds my family's carbon footprint. And I spend billions of dollars on, on climate innovation. So, you know, should I stay at home and not come to Kenya and learn about farming and malaria? Anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with the idea that not only am I not part of the problem by paying for the offsets, but I also through the billions that my Breakthrough Energy Group is spending, that I'm part of the solution. I'm not part of the problem. I'm part of the solution. I'm a billionaire. Told you who's better than us. Boy, that summarizes it um, quite nicely there. So here you see Bill Gates is reflecting the same attitude as John Kerry. This is the, these guys all rub off on each other. They they're all possessed of the same savior complex, messiah complex, and this idea that they're above the rest of us and that the rules simply do not apply to them. Bill Gates, when he's confronted here about his own hypocrisy, says, well, but I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. I'm comfortable with my own hypocrisy. I'm comfortable with coming to Kenya, flying around the world, having multiple uh, jets, having uh, multiple homes, massive homes, uh, in laying down an enormous carbon footprint because I'm important. I'm important. I'm more important than you. And I get to do what I want to do. So these are people who say, look, you have to be stopped. You have to be stopped because you are a problem. You're the problem. They're not the problem. Your gas stoves, they got to go. There's nope. Your incandescent light bulbs, got to go. There's nope. Your car, got to go. There's nope. There's also talk this past week of your ceiling fans, that they're coming for your ceiling fans, that the ceiling fans themselves are a problem. And it also applies to your free speech. They're coming for your free speech. And this brings me to Elon Musk. Now, I like Elon Musk. I want to say that from the outset as I get into the weeds of how worldview matters here and how it applies to Musk himself. But he stated more than once that he is committed to free speech. In a tweet of November of last year, he said, this is a battle for the future of civilization. If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. Now, that's quite a bold statement. He made this statement as he was taking over Twitter, that this was his stated reason for taking over Twitter, because free speech and thus civilization were at risk. He even went so far as to call himself a free speech absolutist. He's used this language that he is a free speech absolutist. He said this in a, in a March um, uh, 2022 uh, tweet. And that here he is, he's going to be the guy who's going to save civilization. Now, as I say, I do like Musk, but I've had reservations about Elon Musk because he's always seemed... Uh, a too leaky a vessel, to borrow a, uh, a line from Lonesome Dove, he's always seemed too leaky a vessel to put too much hope in. And that's because 
the principles he advocates are based in nothing beyond his own vague ideas of right and wrong. And that means they aren't really principles at all. They're feelings. And feelings are unreliable. Your feelings have no more validity than my feelings. Principles have to be anchored in something eternal. I love um, the 17th century philosopher, artist, scientist, theologian, Blaise Pascal, who said, we must have a fixed point. The harbor serves as a fixed point for those who are aboard a ship. Where shall we find our fixed point in morality? And it was a rhetorical question. Uh, Pascal was an atheist who became a, a Christian. And Pascal's point was to say that if you don't believe in something eternal, if you don't believe in an external, something that is beyond yourself, then you have no fixed point. You have no way to navigate. You're just, you're, you're a ship that instead of looking at Polaris, instead of looking at a fixed uh, point in space and time, the North Star, you're just navigating by driftwood. And that's to not navigate at all. And he says, in morality, we also have to have a fixed point. And for Pascal, that was none other than Jesus Christ himself. A.W. Tozer um, said this, you know, Jesus Christ says, I am the fixed point. Everyone and everything must measure from me. And that's a good way of putting it. But Musk, who describes himself as an agnostic, I don't know that I've ever heard him use that word to describe himself, but when you listen to interviews where he's asked about God, what you come away with is that, is that he's an agnostic. I have not heard him use the phrase, the word, that he is an atheist. Rather, what he has said is that he believes something created the universe. Uh, he says he um, appreciates a Judeo-Christian um, worldview and that he thinks it's valuable and that he tries to adhere to it in uh, in some sense, but he's not really anchored in it. He's not anchored in anything eternal. And thus his worldview is all sale, no anchor. He doesn't have a rational basis for his worldview. And um, once you reject belief in God, you by default reject absolute right and wrong, morality, justice, meaning, and hope. It's just where you find yourself. And Musk, I mean, you embrace meaninglessness. And Musk, as smart as he is, doesn't seem to have realized this. Still, in his early days of his Twitter takeover, he positioned himself as a champion of free speech and that this was a very principled position that he was taking. And he was compared to a superhero, seemed to like it. You saw that all over Twitter or X, as they now call it. Um, Joe Rogan hailed Elon Musk as a movie star type of superhero with his, his Twitter takeover because a lot of people, people like me, were very hopeful that Musk was really going to be a champion of free speech. And you begin seeing all these, you know, artificial intelligence generated images of Musk as a superhero. And he told a CNBC interviewer that if he lost money, so be it. Free speech was to hear him tell it. That was his mission. That was why he was buying 
Twitter. Now, I would say that the early signs were promising. He unlocked a number of conservative accounts, while others, including my own, suddenly began um, to flourish. You know, my own Twitter following. I was on Twitter from 2010 until his takeover in November of 2022. My following on Twitter never exceeded 25 or 26,000 people. It was like I hit a ceiling and I just wasn't climbing any more above that. Between his takeover in November of 2022 and um, the middle of the summer of 2023, my Twitter following jumped to over 100,000. So in less than a year, I vastly outpaced what had happened in the previous 12 years on the platform. Now, that has everything to do with what he said he was going to do, which he said, we're going to take our finger off the scale. There was very definitely under the old regime, uh, conservatives were being choked. Their, their accounts were being held down. Your reach was being held down. So again, early signs with Musk were very positive. Then came the Twitter files. This avalanche of negative information, corruption at Twitter that Musk himself was exposing. As they were, you know, kind of going through, you know, the offices, the computers, the hard drives, and finding, unearthing all the bodies in that place. They exposed the internal rot of his predecessors and their collusion with government to suppress opinions that the left did not agree with. Also, he hosted a, a DeSantis spaces. He offered to reinstate Trump. Things were going in the right direction, and then something happened. He hired Linda Yaccarino as Twitter or X CEO. Do you know what she is? She's a member of the WEF, the World Economic Forum. Now, given Musk's defiant posture towards the Biden administration and the World Economic Forum, this seemed more than a little odd. Here was Musk, this champion of free speech, who then goes and hires this lefty who is anti-free speech. She does not share his free speech vision. I went to her, uh, her Twitter profile, and you know you can, you can search the tweets of an individual. So you could go to mine, for instance, and type in Bama football or Jesus or Elon Musk or whatever and see if I've tweeted on that among the many things that I've tweeted about. So if you, you were to go to Musk's profile on Twitter, on X, and you were to go to the, uh, the search feature and you were to type in free speech, you would find several times that Musk has made reference to free speech. He's talked about, he's tweeted about free speech. Linda Yaccarino, I typed in free speech on the search engine of her tweets. You know what I got? Nothing. 
absolutely nothing. She doesn't tweet about free speech. She doesn't care about free speech. She is not in favor of free speech. I want you to watch this interview that she gave on CNBC. Staggeringly, they take it down. And that reducing that hateful content from being seen is one of the best examples how X is committed to encouraging healthy behavior online. And today, I can confidently sit in front of you and say that 99.9% of all posted impressions are healthy. How do you define healthy, though? Is porn healthy? Are conspiracy theories healthy? You know, it goes back to my point about our success with freedom of speech, not reach. And if it's if it is lawful, but it's awful, it's extraordinarily difficult for you to see it. But how many millions of people follow Kanye West? Now, I hope you are listening very carefully to what she had to say there. We believe at, at Twitter, at X, now she's in charge. We believe in freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. And then she says... If it's lawful, but awful, it's extraordinarily difficult to see. Now, since Linda Yaccarino has taken over, Musk has slowly backed away from his free speech bravado that characterized his early Twitter takeover days. You're, you're not hearing him say these things the way he was early on about the future of civilization depends on on freedom of speech. You're not hearing him say that anymore. Gone are the confident assertions about his unwavering commitment to free speech. Now, if you've ever had, if you ever had a friend who, who was transformed from a man into a wimp because of the sudden appearance of a new woman in his life, does, does this ever happen to you? You know, there's a very funny uh, well, somewhat funny movie that came out maybe 20 years ago called Saving Silverman, which is all about, you know, you know, three guys, they all hang out together. And one of them, you know, he, he starts dating, you know, this, this bridezilla and she destroys all of their fun. You know, they, they love to have a good time together. But now that she's entered the picture, she's busted up the group. She's busted up their friendship. And this guy has now become her lap dog. I mean, she, he's, she totally controls his life. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it looks a lot like what we're seeing happening with Elon Musk. Suddenly, Elon Musk feels to me like Prince Harry. And Linda Yaccarino is in the role of Meghan Markle. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like this is the relationship now. You know, and early on, what you heard everyone say when he hired Linda Yaccarino, the, the Elon Musk fan says, hey, don't worry. Elon has a plan. He's in control. This is just, you know, this is just an attempt to, you know, to appease, you know, the people on the left and to appease his advertisers because he was losing a lot of advertisers, as he himself said. And then her job was just simply to tell them to all come back. Everything's going to be fine. But it isn't playing out like that at all. We, we need a saving Silverman type of mission here. 
we've got to we've got to kidnap Elon Musk and save him from Linda Yaccarino because he is slowly becoming Prince Harry. And now Meghan Markle is in charge of Twitter or X, whatever you would like to call it. This has been the tr this has been the transformation of Elon Musk. The downward progression of Elon Musk has looked something like this. Stage one was his confidence assertion, I'll save free speech and civilization. I'll do it. Stage two is where he says, okay, I've hired a WEF member as our CEO, but no worries, people. I'm still in charge. Stage three is where he says, freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. Now, this was your first clue that Musk was no longer, in his own words, a free speech absolutist. This was your first clue that he was no longer committed to free speech. Because by limiting your reach, they are absolutely limiting your speech. And no clever syllogism can hide the fact. It's one thing if people choose not to look at your tweet or my tweet. That is, they make the decision not to look at it or to hear what you have to say. But it's quite another when Linda Yaccarino and her lefty geeks decide a priori that others on the platform will not be permitted to hear what you have to say. Who gets to determine what's lawful but awful? Who gets to determine reach? Why, she does. She gets to determine that she becomes the fixed point of free speech at X, at Twitter. She does. You see what happens, worldview matters when whatever you adopt, whatever, whatever conclusions you arrive at concerning God's existence or his non-existence, those dominoes just keep falling throughout your life. And you end up saying, when you reject the existence of God, you end up saying, I am God. I am God. Or you make someone else God in your life. You begin worshiping something or someone else. Or you just appoint yourself. I'm my own God. I'm the one who determines what's right and wrong. By limiting your reach, what they are doing is censorship that's just being performed from the other side. They're not preventing you from saying it. They're just preventing other people from hearing it. It's censorship. And, and I'm noticing this, by the way, on X myself, because suddenly my reach has gone big time. I have, you know, well over 100,000 followers, and I'll tweet something, and it'll get 15 likes. And you're going, this is odd. How is this happening? How is it that it seems no one is seeing these tweets? Well, because the answer is they aren't. And I'm seeing it with other prominent accounts. The final and frankly the most shocking stage in Elon Musk's downward spiral came when actor James Woods questioned Musk's recent announcement that the block feature on Twitter on X would be removed. Now, if you don't understand what this is, the block feature means that let's just say someone is harassing you and they're only there to disrupt conversation. They're heckling you. 
um, you can hit block, which means they don't see your tweets and they can't interact with your tweets. I suppose they could go create a fake account and, uh, you know, and begin doing that, but they, it, it makes it much more difficult for them to do that. And uh, the block feature is very important because uh, there's a safety aspect that is involved in this. There's, there's two things that are involved. One is certainly safety because there are those people who can become quite threatening that need to be blocked. And then, then there's just the aspect of having rational conversation. You know, I, when I give a lecture or I'm, I'm teaching somewhere, I, I often make this statement, and this has held true throughout my entire career, you don't have to agree with me to come. You don't have to believe in God. I don't care if you're an atheist, a Buddhist, uh, a Muslim, Hindu, whatever it is that you are. You're welcome to come, provided that you're interested and respectful. Otherwise, you need to leave or be removed because you are preventing other people from enjoying themselves or being able to listen or being able to interact. Those are the kinds of people that need to be removed both from a, a physical space or lecture or classroom where you might be speaking, but also on social media, a virtual classroom where people are trying to have rational conversation and they can't because someone has decided to come and they're just heckling. They're not there to do anything more than that. And so James Woods quite quite rightly pointed this out. And he said to, um, to Musk, he says, if Musk removes the ability to block concerted harassment by trolls or organized political entities, how will X, Twitter, be any different from Jack Dorsey's horrid Twitter? Jack Dorsey was the previous CEO of Twitter. He says, how will Musk's version of this platform be any different from their platform? from their version of Twitter. He says, it would be none. I mean, why is he doing this? I thought he was committed to free speech. And Musk's flippant, petulant reply was uh, to James Woods, delete your account. And then he blocked James Woods. Elon, that was a jerk move. A lot of people like to think that you're not a jerk but that was a jerk move. Now, most of us don't mind seeing Hollywood types get their comeuppance, but that's not what this was. No, this was Musk being a bully and a whiner. And it's not as if he doesn't actually like the Hollywood set anyway. When Musk announced the blue checks, you know, the verification checks would be an $8 per month charge, which is reasonable, a whole host of Hollywood leftists went absolutely bonkers. People like William Shatner and Bette Midler and Jason Alexander, only to name a few, they rebelled at the thought, why should I have to pay $8? I refuse, I refuse to pay the $8. Times must be tough in Hollywood. Now, did, did Musk tell them to delete their accounts? No, he didn't. He actually paid the fees for them. He said, I'll, I'll pay the fees for you. But the moment that James Woods, who was a conservative, complained about removing the block feature, and he did so very reasonably. What Woods had to say was quite reasonably worded. And it was a, it's, a, it's a serious question. And Musk himself says that he likes to hear other opinions, clearly not ones that he doesn't agree with. And 
let's be clear too, James Woods isn't one of the cool kids because he is a conservative. He's a Hollywood outsider. Now he wields a pretty big stick on Twitter on X, but um, Musk decided to punish him. Is he a free speech absolutist or not? Worldview matters, people. You see, Musk's worldview isn't anchored in anything beyond his own vague inner promptings. And this is, this is where you end up. You're just all over the map. And it gets worse. According to PC Magazine, X, Twitter, will soon introduce face recognition. Verifying your identity on X will require taking a selfie. It only takes about five minutes to complete, but requires submitting photos of your government-issued ID and a snapshot of yourself just to get into your social media account. This is creepy stuff, people. But hey, Musk is a free speech absolutist. He's all about freedom. He's all about the saving civilization. Again, I'll say it, ideas have consequences. And when your fixed point is no fixed point at all, but it is in you and your own ideas that blow about with the prevailing winds, the zeitgeist, you're all over the place. And what's interesting to me about this too is the, the, the devolution, the downward spiral of Elon Musk from would-be Tony Stark and Iron Man, who was going to champion the little people, to becoming a Linda Yaccarino lapdog, didn't come after he was waterboarded or had bamboo wedges driven under his fingernails or was subjected to a lengthy stint in a Siberian gulag. No, our hero's courage failed him in much the same manner as the disciple Peter's did. Only here, the servant girl came in the form of advertising boycotts. They put only a little bit of pressure on Musk. He was losing money. One of the richest, if not the richest man in the world, and yet he still caved to the pressure. Now, perhaps I libel, slander, I should say, a whole class of people unfairly when I say that I've never known a highly successful businessman who was courageous when being so was contrary to his own business interests. Always seems to me that the bottom line wins out. And this is a microcosm of the collapse of the West as a whole. Courage is lacking. Men and women cave not because they've been tortured or threatened with execution, they are caving because their comfort is threatened or because they face social media cancel culture. It's just too much. When your principles collapse so easily, it says something about you. It says something about the culture from which you're derived. We've become a rudderless society, a society that is lacking, as C.S. Lewis put it, men with chests. We've become a society of men without chests. 
And you see, as an agnostic, Musk's guiding principles, whatever they are, are not rooted in anything beyond his own vague adherence to some sort of vague Judeo-Christian worldview. And that is, as I have said, it means that he's all sail, no anchor. He's just blown about by the prevailing zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, of the moment. When push comes to shove and one's worldview is tested, Musk offers a few glib one-liners from something like, say, Princess Bride, rather than a profound faith anchored in Holy Scripture. Musk's unbelief has consequences. Now, again, I want to be clear. I like Elon Musk, and I have a vested interest in him achieving what he has repeatedly stated is his mission, and that is to grow X, to grow Twitter as a free speech platform. But I'm starting to lose faith. Recent developments are not promising. They suggest that Musk has more money than backbone, and the latter will bow to the demands of the former. It's taken precious little pressure on Musk to bring him to heel along with the other globalists, along with globalist objectives. And just in time for the elections, by the way. Twitter X is a threat to globalist objectives because it has been for a very brief window of time under Musk an authentically free speech platform. And that is a threat. That is a threat to the globalist agenda. That is a threat to the leftists. That is a threat to the fascio Marxists who are taking over the Western world. That is a threat to free elections. Or uh, let me rephrase that. That is a threat to rigged elections. It might mean free elections. Let's pray that Musk finds real convictions and also the courage to adhere to them. As it stands, he increasingly is looking like, as I say, you know, Prince Harry to Meghan Markle. He just is simply a guy who's doing what he's told. Now, all of this is related. If you believe there is a God, but that he is above all arbitrary and harsh in his judgments and legalistic in his requirements, demanding strict conformity, you'll create societies like those of the Islamic world. If you notice, Islamic states are cookie-cutter states and everything from the way that people live to the architecture. And that is because of the God they believe in. If you believe that there are many deities warring for dominion in a chaotic cosmos and that God is just an unknown and unknowable universal essence, then you'll create societies like those of the Hindus and the Buddhists. If you believe, as I do, that God has created mankind in his own image, that he has purpose for your life, that he desires relationship with you, and has given you creation that you might have dominion over it, and that he has revealed something of himself and of his orderliness in it, it changes absolutely everything. When I became a Christian and I suddenly believed that my life had meaning, it changed everything for me. But if you believe there is no God, 
that there's no one to judge you in the next life for your actions in this one, then tyrannical government is never far away. You'll end up with either a fascist or a Marxist or a globalist dictatorship, which is really just a blend of both fascism and Marxism. And you'll ultimately regard human beings as nothing more than raw material for the building of the super state. And this is where we are. In a post-Christian West, we are inching towards globalist tyranny where the individual will count for nothing. And it's all being done with words like sustainability, the greater good for the good of the planet and similar um, phrases that sound so um, non-threatening. Rejecting the Christian worldview, a worldview that has given us the greatest aspects of Western civilization, Western civilization as we have known it, will have disastrous consequences for all but a handful of elitists who will govern the rest of us. You see, in the Christian worldview, government, a temporal institution, serves man an eternal being. In the secular worldview, be it Marxist, fascist, or globalist, this is reversed. Man, a temporal being, serves government, an eternal institution. Do you see the difference? There is an enormous difference. This post-Christian worldview is implicit in everything you hear John Kerry and Linda Yaccarino and Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and all the people who are like them in what they say. And if Elon Musk doesn't find a firm mooring for his worldview, he will continue to drift in their direction. You see, ideas have consequences, ladies and gentlemen. And it all starts with the question of God.